Welcome to the Omfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the OMFIF Podcast. I'm Taylor Pierce, economist of OMFIF's Economic and Monetary Policy Institute. Here with me today is Dr. Max Costelli, Head of Strategy of Sovereign Institutions at UBS Asset Management, who will be discussing the public investor outlook for 2023. Welcome, Max. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much, Taylor. Once again, I'm very happy to be interviewed by you. Happy to have you. I think we can just jump right in. Clearly, it's been quite the tumultuous year, both politically and economically. So can you start by giving us a quick wrap up of 2022? What were the emergent trends in sovereign investor strategies from this year? And we can go into more detail later, but maybe just to start off, where do you expect continuities in these trends next year? And where do you expect diversions? Thank you. So let's start, as you said, from a review of 2022. And there is no doubt that uh, 2022 has been a very difficult year for public investors. As you know, in our team, in team covering so- sovereign institution, UBS Asset Management, we run a sample portfolio for different types of public investors. And uh, just to put some numbers, uh, year to date, which are data at the end of October, so let's say very close to the year-end data, we have losses which oscillate for reserve manager, which is the first group of investor, public investor that we sample, which oscillate between something like 1.3% for the most conservative of the central bank's portfolio, let's say the one which is invested in cash and short duration bonds. But these losses actually increase when you start to look at portfolio which are more diversified across fixed income assets which have more duration in, in, in their fixed income portfolio. Here, the losses are close and in some cases just uh, north of 10%. And then these losses actually reach 13, uh, around 13% when we look at the central banks, uh, the reserve manager, which have diversified as well part of their reserve into equity. Of course, uh, uh, central banks are only one uh, group of investors that we monitor. We have seen uh, similar losses, for instance, for so-called uh, stabilization fund which, as you know, these are the typical commodity-based economies which have uh, funds which are used for uh, stabilization purpose, which normally invest uh, still in fixed income, but with more long-duration type of bonds. And here the losses have been in the area of between uh, 9.8% and 12%, depending on the different uh, profile. And then last but not least, we have, of course, the sovereign wealth funds, which are the typical long-term investor. They have a much more diversified portfolio. And for this type of investor, the losses have been oscillating between 15 and 19% year to date. So definitely a very tough year. At least we need to go back, at least in historical context, we need to go back to the great financial crisis of 2008 and 2009 for finding such level of losses. Actually, in 2008, the losses were larger than this, but still, uh, since the great financial crisis, the portfolio of this type of investor have never suffered losses of this magnitude. What I think it is also important to highlight, uh, this has also been a difficult year because one important difference between uh, 2022 and 2008, which is the fact that what we call the positive correlation between uh, equity and the fixed income market. For instance, uh, as you know, during 2008, actually many fixed income portfolio actually had a positive return during uh, the sell-off, largely because interest rates were coming from a higher level and they've been decreased to support the economy. So sovereign wealth funds, for instance, lost uh, a lot. But for the majority of reserve managers, actually, they were uh, they experienced a positive uh, return. 
Now, in terms of this uh, positive correlation, definitely this is very challenging for investors because there is no compensation between the two different legs of the portfolio. And this, of course, creates a problem in the sense that diversification becomes does not help very much uh, during a period of market downturn uh, or uh, volatility. I would say, uh, let me add an additional element, uh, which is also very important, which is uh, the increased volatility in the fixed income market. This is something that normally you see more in the equity market, which are uh, by definition more volatile. But actually, one important feature of this year has been definitely the rise in volatility in the fixed income uh, market. What I think what happened then as investors start to see their portfolio shrinking over the year. One interesting aspect of this year has been definitely that we have not seen in general public investor, and I mean both a reserve manager and the more long-term investor like sovereign wealth funds, to really moving away from the diversification trend that we, that we saw over the last 20 years. For instance, I remember that we ran survey on a regular basis, and in the survey that we ran in June last year, in particular focused on reserve manager, we found out that the eligibility of listed equity which is one of the, of the asset classes which has been used for diversification by reserve manager over the last few years, reached an all-time high of 50% at the global level. This was the highest percentage of eligibility that we experienced since we ran the survey. We've been running the survey for more than, uh, than 20 years. Also, if I look at the more sort of pension, so public pension fund and sovereign wealth funds, we are seeing a continuation of the trends. Many of these institutions rebalance as the market corrected, maybe a little bit less on the equity side, largely because also fixed income came down in tandem with, with equity. And also we saw definitely the continuation of the interest for alternative asset classes, which has been another major trend that we saw over the last 20 years. Now, as we move in 2023, I will, you will hear me talking and using this word quite a lot, which is uncertainty. There is a lot of uncertainty for sure, over the economic and financial environment that we are moving in. Actually, as you know, as part of our sample portfolio work, we run different scenarios and we have never, as, as before, we have a lot of divergence in the outcome depending on which scenario we can, we will materialize in the course of next year. We have, for instance, one scenario is what we call the softish landing, which is a more benign scenario which is basically a scenario where the central banks will be able to start putting inflation under control. Interest rate will not rise more than what is currently expected by the market. And in, uh, then we have another scenario, which we, is more a recession scenario instead, which is uh, basically a scenario based on the expectation that ultimately a recession will be unavoidable in the US, in the sense that in order to curb inflation expectation, the Fed will be basically forced to cause a recession in that economy and with obvious recession as well in Europe and other parts of the world. And then we have a first scenario, which is also very much debated among our clients, which is stagflation. And depending on where, uh, how 2023 will play out, and I think as we move in the new year, I think that there will be more, uh, this uncertainty probably will dissipate uh, a little bit, at least, because we will see whether this uh, sort of more recent improvement in the inflation outlook and you also saw the effect on the market eventually will continue or or instead if we're going to see again uh, an increase in inflation which of course would imply in a, 
an expectation of even higher interest rates, or we are going to see, we are going to have a, a recession. The, the challenge of these different scenarios as we look at the different portfolio is that these two more extreme scenarios, recession and stagflation, actually they have a very different implication in particularly not only for the equity market, which is the most obvious, but also for the fixed income market. And this, of course, is something that is, is in the mind of all the investors that, that we, we are talking to. Maybe I stop here because I think we will touch upon over a question of diversification later on in the podcast. But I think that's what we see in 2000, what we saw in 2022 and what we expect for 2023. Yeah, great. That's a perfect introduction. Um, we will touch on diversification just a bit later, but first I want to come back to inflation. You mentioned that you've modeled various scenarios of inflation for the upcoming year. I wonder, it seems that markets are anticipating a peak next year and a return to inflation levels closer to target, at least within the next 24 months or so. If I can ask you to look into the crystal ball, what is your expectation of inflation going into 2023? And do you think that this market view is too optimistic that we're just going to return to pre-Russian invasion of Ukraine levels, pre-COVID levels of inflation? And what could this mean for investment decisions if, if it's perhaps uh, too optimistic? Yeah, as I mentioned, there is no doubt that uncertainty over the inflation path is, uh, is very high. And it is true as that over the last few weeks, we saw a slight slowdown in inflation. But I think that one month's data is not enough to really say that the peak is behind us and that we are starting to see a slowdown towards the target. The relatively more sort of benign data on inflation, of course, has also impacted interest rate expectation. And now the market more or less is expecting interest rate in the US to peak at around 5% or just below 5%. And in fact, you saw a pretty dramatic recovery in the bond price in the month of November. Now, the, fact, the problem is that the, the uncertainty over the inflation outlook is that it is about the nature of this inflation shock that we are living in. And here, let me say that there are basically multiple factors which is driving inflation. And these are both on the supply and on the demand side. Of course, the one on the supply side are the, the obvious one. Of course, the energy shock that we had with the war in Ukraine, deglobalization and fragmentation and all the problems that we have on international value chain. Then we have an additional demand driving inflation, which is the still stronger purchasing power of households which is actually being, which is putting pressure in, uh, on the inflation rate, particularly in certain sectors, in particularly the service sector, that now is actually doing uh, very well because uh, after the COVID, there is a, a strong increase in demand. And we see that if you travel or you go to restaurants, you realize that definitely there is not a feeling that there is a recession uh, imminent. The problem is that, and this I think the one million question is, if it is reasonable to expect that, and in part it is already happening, that the pressure on price that is coming from the supply side is, uh, is gradually decreasing. We see that in the international value chain, and we see that as well on the manufacturing sector, where uh, the feeling is that the constraint that we experienced last year and this year in the first part of the year are, are loosening. But of course, the question is more about the demand side. And I think this sort of heterogeneity scenario depends very much on the question that we're asking is whether 
central banks will be able with the announced increase in rates to curb demand to the extent that they will be able to use as well the inflation which is arising from that factor, in particular service demand. Another factor which creates uncertainty, I think, is wages. We have seen, uh, particularly in Europe, uh, some robust wage increases, for instance, in Germany, also in the UK, we, have, we saw some demand, which is, of course, uh, and some of these increases are not probably in line with the target rate uh, of 2%. What I think central banks fear, and I think also explain why they take such a robust move in terms of interest rate increase year to date, is that they fear very much the creation of a so-called uh, wage price spiral. And, and this is something that I think it is a risk that definitely needs to be monitored. The longer the inflation remains high, the more destruction of purchasing power of the household we will have. And this, of course, will prompt more demand for higher wages. In terms of, the, of this uncertainty about inflation, let me refer to the three scenarios we have, and I'll give you some numbers. So when we model the softest lending scenario, we see inflation peaking early 2023 and then gradually falling and remaining relatively high still in 2023, more than 3%, actually 3.5%. And then we see this inflation gradually falling over the following years and averaging then, when we look at the five-year period, about about the 2.7%. I'm talking about the US inflation. But just to give you an idea, instead of the alternative scenario, which is a recessionary scenario, which I said, we're talking about a deep recession in the US with rising unemployment and over economic indicators going in very negative territory, we actually see inflation rapidly falling and actually falling beyond target at 1.8%. And in this case, of course, if you look at these two alternative scenarios, in the first one, we have the US policy rate, the cash rate at around 3.5% over the medium term. And instead, in the recession scenario, we see interest rate falling to around 1% in the US. This is definitely a very different word for the fixed income market. And then, of course, we have the third one, which is the one most feared by everybody, which is the stagflation scenario. Here, we have a, we, in our scenario, we model the US inflation on average to stay at around 6% over the next five years. And this would imply that the U.S. cash rate would actually go well above 5%, 5.5% on average, and actually the long-term interest rate would increase to above 6%. Definitely another scenario of dramatic impact in terms of fixed income market. I think what we have to monitor very closely is basically as well, and this is a topic of conversation with many institutions, what if inflation actually starts falling? but does not really fall rapidly to target, which I think it is also a reasonable scenario. I think this is basically a scenario which is in the middle between the recession and the soft shield one that I mentioned to you before. And that this uh, coupled together with the slowdown in the economy, maybe will not be a severe re recession like the second scenario that I described, but still it would put a lot of pressure on central banks that they would find some difficulties in maintaining a higher interest rate for a prolonged period of time. And I think this is going to be as well a scenario which is not maybe stagflation, but still would be a difficult scenario to navigate from, a, from an investment perspective. Yeah, I mean, none of those are particularly rosy scenarios, but I 
think I'm hoping for the <laughs> well the the selfish landing I believe it is a relatively benign scenario not only because the basic inflation does not go down to two percent over the period but still goes very close to two yeah. percent and the, the increase in interest rate basically which is currently expected by the market would be the one which they materialize and actually eventually with this five-year period we see interest rate peaking and then going down and three and a half percent would be probably what we could call a normalization of interest rate after a very prolonged period of zero very low interest rates. Yeah, definitely. So hopefully, fingers crossed, that's what we see heading into next year. But on the theme of monetary policy, I just want to pivot and ask about quantitative easing and tightening and what you anticipate in 2023 and the effects that this will have as well on sovereign investors. I found that the whole question of uh, quantitative tightening very interesting because as the focus uh, completely was, uh, is, has been and is uh, currently on uh, interest rates, you can see how and how much interest rates are currently driving uh, in particular, interest rate expectation are driving uh, asset price. It is interesting because quantitative tightening in some way has been a little bit left on the side, right, by investors. There is no really much focus, but definitely it is uh, something that I think is uh, going to be, it is very important and it is going to be very important as we move into 2023. In fact, if apart from Bank of Japan, the main central banks are basically preparing uh, to shift their balance sheet. In 2000, just as, to, as a reminder, in July 2022, the Fed already began by avoiding new, new purchases, but continue to reinvest the proceeds from maturing bonds. And we should remember as well that as well, the ECB is actually preparing as well for QTE. Now, basically what happened is that I believe there has been also an acceleration in this QTE program, also because as inflation continued rising in the course of 2022, central banks are basically moving to a very more restrictive monetary policy mindset. And of course, QTE is also part of the toolkit that central banks have at their disposal. We should also not forget that I think central banks wanted to do QT quite a while ago already, but several events intervened, which in some way postponed that decision. It was COVID and then it was the war in Ukraine. So in some way now there is, a, let's say, fertile ground for central banks to start really thinking about balance sheet reduction. The question so. But exactly what type of balance sheet reduction will be done is still, uh, once again, and I'm sorry if I abuse this word in this, in this podcast, is, uh, is very uncertain still. First of all, there is no real agreement how much balance sheet reduction is needed. There is a view that, for instance, central banks and balance sheet will not go back to the level which were prevailing before the balance sheet expansion started. And the reason is that there is a clear sort of preference for more for a bigger balance sheet, largely because commercial banks need to hold more liquid assets with central banks. Now, let's say if I have to take a sort of a, as a rule of thumb, I would say that the most reasonable expectation, it is for a decrease which will be between one quarter and one third, depending on which central banks we are talking about. Also, we should not forget, and I was involved in uh, another event where there was a very lively debate about that. There is no real uh, optimal, well, no, there is no definition of the optimal size of a balance sheet uh, of a central bank. So this means that uh, I believe uh, QT will develop through time and will have to be done also in line with what's happening in financial market and in general in uh, monetary policy. Now, the question is, what are the implications? 
So on a macro level, I think the impact will depend very much uh, on the speed with which the central banks will start implementing QTE and also on which type of asset central banks will sell. Because as you know, there are different types of assets which have been bought, for instance, in the US and in Europe. And of course, this will probably have an implication on aggregate demand. But to be honest, I think it would be very difficult to come up with an estimate of what this impact will be. There are other interesting, however, implications, which I start to see as well being the focus of central banks' conversation, which is, in, first of all, there are some fiscal implications, which are very important. In fact, if you remember when central banks did the QE, the quantitative expansion, normally this was basically what we call in investing in the financial service industry, a very profitable carry trade. So they were basically buying long-term government bonds, which were financed with short-term liabilities. And basically there was a net gain for the central banks. In fact, central banks have been transferring this gain to the treasury. If I'm not mistaken, I was reading uh, about this uh, over the Bank of England, uh, for instance, QE program delivers something like uh, more than 120 billion pounds to the treasury. Now, as interest rate rise, we are starting to see the reversal of that. This carry trade becomes negative. And in fact, unless these are estimates from, from the budgetary office of the UK, that they estimate that the, the treasury will have to transfer to the Bank of England more than 130 billion to compensate over the next five years to compensate for this negative carry trade. And that's something that I think does not concern only the Bank of England, but as well over central banks around the world. Particularly, I think as well in the euro area, I hear this topic being discussed more and more among central banks. Then there are two additional elements that I think will determine the pace and the, and the magnitude of the QT. One, of course, particularly in regards to Europe, it is about, of course, the fact that QT impact different economies with different intensities, depending, of course, on the public debt level. We know that we, the periphery in Europe pay higher interest rate on debt compared to the core. And of course, the, the ECB will have to, in some way, manage this different impact. And I think this will be something as the yields continue to rise, that will become very topical in 2023 as well, if especially there are some fiscal accident, if I can use that word as the one that we experienced in the UK. It, something similar could happen as well in other countries. I think about Italy and eventually uh, too much lose fiscal uh, stance by the new right-wing government. For So I think that's a very important element to keep in mind. And the third one, uh, which I think it is as well a concern for many investors, is the potential impact of QT on the liquidity of the fixed income market. I think here there are uh, two elements. One, uh, I think the UK experience has been important because it showed that ultimately, particularly with regards to money market funds, if something happens, there is, uh, I think the market is convinced that the, the central banks can always intervene uh, very carefully and arrest any sort of problem. I think that's exactly what we saw in the UK with a massive reversal from the Bank of England, which in some way reduced immediately that, uh, that risk. But generally speaking, as you know, there is a, a very important ongoing debate about, in general, the liquidity in the fixed income market. And for sure, the removal of a big acquire like a central bank from the government bond market could eventually create some liquidity issues as well there. So definitely something to monitor.
Thank you for that very comprehensive overview of both kinds of monetary policy, including interest rate calibrations and quantitative easing and or tightening that we can expect. I'd like to shift back now to diversification, which you mentioned at the beginning of our discussion. You mentioned that diversification across asset classes and currencies is a trend that you have witnessed over the past several years. Despite a much more volatile macro environment, it seemed that at least midway through this year, based on your survey findings, this trend was still on the table for reserves managers, but diversification was still of interest to them. And what do you think is driving this trend? Which asset classes do you think are going to be affected by the positive cor correlation, which you mentioned earlier? And in particular, which alternative asset classes do you think are going to be of interest for, for reserve managers? As I already mentioned, uh, we have not seen a reversal or in the trends of diversification that has been going on now for many, many years, particularly among reserve managers, but in general, among uh, any type of public investor. So this is very important uh, to keep in mind. As you know, we, we, in order to understand uh, how the new economic and financial environment we're moving in could impact diversification, we should understand uh, what has been the drivers of div diversification in the previous phase. And uh, basically the, the main driver has been for sure the prolonged period of low yields, particularly of course, uh, we're talking about fixed income market, that basically push reserve manager to diversify away from government bonds into spread products within the fixed income space or listed equity, or for those who are able to take that liquidity premium into even alternative asset classes, like for instance, infrastructure or, or real estate, which I think an additional important driver of the diversification has been as well the rapidly rising foreign exchange reserve, which at the end of 2021, actually they touched the whole time peak. Generally speaking, Higher reserve means that there is more room for diversification as the goal of return become as important as the two primary goal of reserve manager, which, is a which are capital preservation and the liquidity. The context, the macroeconomic context of this massive buildup of reserve has been, of course, the intervention of central banks around the world, particularly emerging market, to keep the competitiveness of their currency. Now, we can say that this period is now over, and uh, as I said, the, there is still uncertainty over the outlook for interest rate, and as I mentioned, we also have a scenario where interest rates suddenly, or suddenly, sorry, in a recessionary scenario, will go back to a very low level, so we might go back to the sort of low for longer type of economic and financial environment that we had before 2022. However, I think that it is, given the inflation dynamics, it is reasonable to expect that interest rate will remain uh, higher than what have been the case over the last decades. Now, a word uh, with higher nominal return in the risk-free asset, which is the government bonds, will inevitably have implication for over asset classes. As you know, we think in risk-adjusted terms, right? So we don't look only at absolute return. And assuming that a similar level of volatility in asset classes over the long term, it's pretty obvious that government bonds and over fixed income assets become more attractive in risk-adjusted terms. The question is whether this repricing of the all asset classes as a result of rising yields 
will eventually slow down the diversification in reserve management? I suspect not. And uh, because, uh, first of all, diversification has proven to be beneficial several time after time and in different economic and uh, financial environment. So I suspect what we experienced in 2022 with the simultaneous drop in equity and fixed income, the so-called positive correlation, might not necessarily uh, endure for very long. And there is already a discussion about the outlook, for instance, uh, for the whether the balanced portfolio will eventually have <laughs> a comeback after this uh, very difficult year. Diversification, particularly for central banks, has never been um, a sort of a market type of decision in the sense that they look at the market and based on that, they decided whether to diversify or more. It's always been a long-term strategy, which actually has very long time to materialize. Normally, central banks, when they look at diversifying, they go through a very lengthy period of looking at their portfolio. And then the decision is taken in a way almost regardless of where where the market stands at the moment. Example I have is of central banks, which are going, as we speak, into listed equity for the first time. And this decision probably has been developed and agreed over a period of several years. So I think this is a long-term strategy and also reflect the fact that central banks have become a more sophisticated investor compared to where 20 years ago. They understand the benefit of diversification and they will, I think they will stick to it. There is an additional twist to that, which is what I mentioned to you before. FX reserves are falling at a global level. For a very simple reason, which is that central banks are now more on the opposite FX policy in the sense that they are intervening to strengthen their currency because this policy is very important to keep inflation under control. Liquidity. So the, what I'm trying to say is that the question of liquidity, I think, has become relatively more important. And on this, there are some important considerations to be made. I remember very well during the great financial crisis that uh, fixed income market actually suffer uh, liquidity problems. If you remember well, during the period of high volatility in a surprise, corporate bond market was impacted in terms of liquidity. The markets which have remained always liquid, which basically means that you can always trade also big amount of asset, is actually being the equity market. So here there is a very interesting uh, consideration to be made that when you look at market from a liquidity perspective, actually the equity market are considered probably the most liquid one. And of course, this used not to be the case before when fixed income market were considered the most liquid market. Putting the, all this together, I believe that we are definitely going to see, I don't say an acceleration in diversification, but I think particularly reserve manager will remain diversified. But what I think we are going to see as well is a different type of diversification. Diversification so far has mainly been about diversifying across uh, asset classes. For instance, the move from fixed income to equity and eventually to alternative. But very often this has done uh, has been done in a passive way. So basically they buy the index in the listed equity market exactly as they tended to buy the index as well in the bond market. What we are going to see probably is more diversification in the search of alpha, which basically means that will be less passive investing and more active investing. This is something that is very important because in our jargon, we say that we're moving from a regime where you wanted to be a beta player 
to instead we're moving into a regime where uh, you want to be more an alpha player. And this is actually going to be true not only for the equity market, which has been the typical alpha play for many investors, but I believe also in the fixed income market. That's why we are seeing uh, in terms of diversification, many central banks, for instance, starting to a different type of strategy within fixed income. For instance, what we call more flexible or dynamic or absolute return strategy, which are basically an injection of activists in a fixed income portfolio where you're able to take, for instance, different duration bets across different asset classes or across different regions. And I think these trends will continue and I think will reinforce as, uh, as we move into, into 2023. Yeah, very interesting. Related to diversification, perhaps a bit more specifically on currency, another trend that was highlighted by your survey was the steady increase in renminbi holdings and decrease in US dollars. And this is also something that OMPIF has found in, in our survey of central bank reserve managers as well. Given China's slowing growth and some of the more recent social tension we've been seeing as a result of the continued lockdowns, do you think that this is likely to change reserve managers' appetite for RMB, or uh, do you think that they're more likely to take a longer approach in this, as you mentioned, they are in some of their other portfolios? And what do you think is the outlook for currency holdings and regional allocations more generally? Well, let's start from where we stand, and I'm looking forward to see the results of your survey as you publish your report. At the moment, I can focus on the result of our survey, where we always monitor what is the current level of demand among reserve managers for RMB fixed income. Basically, we ask, we have the percentage of survey responded that are invested or considering investing in the RMB. And we had a pretty consistent number, which is around 84, 85%. And actually in 2022, so in June of this year, we had this this percentage at around 85%. So overall, we are not seeing any change in the sort of what I would define the steady increase in demand for RMB fixed income among our investors. Let me add that in addition to the survey result, also my interaction with central banks around the world, the RMB is a topic of conversation. I have not detected any significant change in this type of attitude of central banks towards the RMB. This, of course, uh, largely reflects uh, the trends that we already observe over the last few years, which is basically an adaptation of the currency allocation of the reserve manager, first of all, to the change composition of their international trade, which automatically increase. If you have more uh, trade with China, you tend to demand more RMB. And this, of course, is reflected as well in the currency composition of the reserve, but also I would say the rising international role of the RMB, which is as well an important driver for many central banks. Of course, this trend has different intensity across the region. It is, of course, the max across Asian economies and Asian central banks, largely because their trade linkage with China are even stronger. But overall, as I said, that's where, where we stand at the moment. Now, the, uh, let me now turn to what's, uh, what's happening now, also, uh, in particular on the investment side. It's pretty obvious that uh, if you look at yields currently, the interest rate differential as moving in favor of the US dollar. This was not the case when we were in a zero interest rate environment before 2022, which of course uh, favored the RMB. So what I think is important is that 
I believe that there are different drivers for demand of RMB. Investment and return is one of them. But I believe that ultimately the strength of the need for being more diversified is likely to keep the demand for RMB pretty robust. Let me also mention that if I can broaden a little bit the perspective, there is not only the RMB as a diversifier. We also have a quite over important, or important, already we have some importance, what we call the so-called secondary reserve currency. This is uh, something that we think about the uh, Canadian dollar, Singapore dollar, and a few others. I believe that we are going to see a little bit as well of more diversification across this currency for two reasons. First of all, because as I mentioned, a more active uh, management of fixed income portfolio leads you to also take more uh, position across a different market rather than being concentrated in the largest one, the euro, the dollar, and the Japanese yen. And also because we might also see some important dynamics as well. One of them could be the geopolitical context, which is very much centered around the US-China confrontation. So it might also make sense to broaden a little bit your perspective and having a little bit more diversification across over reserve currency, which might as well become a little bit more attractive. And the last but not least, eventually the shift towards CDBC and central banks and digital currency is another trend which could make some of this currency, secondary reserve currency, more attractive simply because it will be easier and uh, to trade them more liquid and with less cost associated. Yeah, that's an interesting point about CBDCs and the easing frictions maybe playing an important role in reserve currency allocations and holdings. We could have a whole podcast just on that, but I'd like to shift instead to ask you about sustainability. You mentioned earlier this year that your reserve manager survey found that climate change had actually fallen in importance this year relative to previous years, which is likely due to more acute pressures from the war in Ukraine and subsequent geopolitical tensions. Where do you see sustainability on the list of priorities for reserve managers and central banks more broadly, perhaps in 2023? This is a very good question. And as we move into, I remember when in early 2022, the war in Ukraine erupted and we start to see immediately the impact on the energy market. There was this view that in the trade-off between energy security and energy transition, energy security might take over so that we would have seen a slowdown in the interest uh, or at least in the sort of in the prioritization of energy transition among uh, policymakers and uh, ultimately eventually among investors. I think this has not been the case as we move towards the end of the year. And uh, this is very important uh, because I think there is a clear view that this is uh, an irreversible trend. And uh, we see that uh, not only from our perspective as advisor and as a, a provider of ESG investment strategy, but you, this is uh, reflected in the numbers. And uh, let me mention, for, for instance, that uh, in 2022, we saw a little bit of underperformance of ESG index, particularly on the equity market, compared to the more traditional one, simply because we saw a rise of uh, energy or energy-related stocks and a drop in tech stocks 
The first one are, cl are normally classified with a high carbon footprint, and the tech stocks are normally considered with a low carbon footprint. So this underperformance has not been very big. Actually, we are talking about a relatively small purchase, but still, this is something which I think the investor noticed. But if you look at the flows of investors, so the demand of investor for ESG strategy has been pretty robust. And the flows into ESG strategy has been well above the one in the more standard, the more traditional investment strategy. So these show the demand for investor is there. And if you look at as well reserve manager, actually we saw an acceleration. Many central banks that were already a little bit more ahead, which already made the switch from the traditional to ESG benchmark. We saw more central banks considering that step. And I think this is a reflection of two factors. First of all is the fact that really there is a clear commitment from central banks and they are in some way also driving the agenda. Think about the work of the European Central Banks during the year. Think about the work being done by the Network for Green in the Financial System. We are definitely seeing a policy momentum, a regulatory policy momentum behind that, and central banks are a part of this uh, of these trends, at least for the for the part that they can influence. I think there is also the fact that. Uh, Central banks are starting also to consider climate change a clear risk for financial stability in the sense that the impact of climate change is becoming more visible in terms of impact on real economy. We have several events uh, over the last uh, few years and as well during the 2022, which has also economic and financial implication, which are uh, needs to be taken into account by central bank. I think uh, as well that uh, ultimately there is, there is a view that energy transition is also part of the geopolitical challenge that many parts of the world uh, face. Think about dependency on Russia and on certain particular region. And I think this is also an important driver. If I move now from central banks to sovereign wealth funds and over more, let's say, long-term investors, which are very much focused not only on the listed market, but as well on the alternative asset space. If I look at where demand for alternative asset classes is falling, anything which relates to the energy transition, energy storage, batteries, renewable, renewable infrastructure, green infrastructure, there is a very strong demand. I would say that we face a situation where we don't have enough supply to meet the demand rather than vice versa. So I think this trend is there. It was not in, impacted too much by the recent event in Ukraine. And uh, we, I think that it will eventually even accelerate uh, over the years as soon as the focus on the war in Ukraine will eventually go away. Yeah, we also found in our survey that both public pension funds and sovereign funds are very keen to invest in renewable energy projects as a form of alternative investments. So yes, hopefully that is a trend that will continue to gain in importance and be on sovereign investors' radars. Just to wrap up, I want to know if there are any other key trends that I haven't touched on today that you anticipate as being important for public investors in the upcoming year. Yeah, I already mentioned the shift away from passive to more active investment strategies. I believe this is something which is going to be really be very important, particularly for reserve manager. And this in particular concerned the fixed income market. And let me explain once again why this is the case. This is a move away from a regime of low yield towards a regime of higher yield. As I said, it's going to be not in a straight line. We are going to see different dynamics across different markets and different asset classes within the fixed income universe. And these offer a tremendous opportunity for return generation. 
and the central banks, given their large exposure to fixed income market across multiple currency area, they are in a very good position to take advantage of that. So I think this trend will continue and will accelerate in the course of 2023. A second trend that I would like to highlight is definitely what I already mentioned just a little bit before, which is central banks, uh, digital currency. The progress is continuing in this area, and now we are seeing a more focus on cross-border operationality. Uh, as you know, there has been many pilot projects which have been largely domestic over the last few years. These pilots have been successful, which proved that the technology works. Now we're starting to see a focus and the launch of new pilot projects in the sort of cross-border area. This is going to be very important because, of course, the cross-border element of it would have implication, as I mentioned to you, about the ability of reserve manager to be able to diversify even more across different markets, across different currencies. This is going to be a very interesting development. I believe that uh, if I, you asked me the same question on this topic two years ago, I would say this is something very distant in time. I think we are talking about years, not decades. So we might already start to see in 2023, the result of some important pilot projects which are being handled by some of the leading central banks and the BIS as well. Then another trend that I think I see is of course the rising importance of the geopolitics in uh, how public investors uh, take their decision. And uh, this, of course, concerns several aspects of uh, what's happening in the global economy, the US-China confrontation, the weaponization of reserve, think about the implication of uh, the sanction against the Central Bank of Russia, and in general, also the whole debate about the deglobalization and fragmentation that, of course, is having an impact on not only on the economy itself, but I believe it started to be considered as well as a driver for investment decision. This is as well something that I have not seen in the past. And I think we are going to hear more and more investors talking about taking certain decisions, not necessarily based on hard data like economic data or financial metrics, but rather on geopolitical trends. So I think these three trends, I would say, are going definitely to be the important one as we move into 2023. Great. Well, thank you so much for touching on all these various issues and providing such a comprehensive view of what we can expect going into the upcoming year. Max, it's been a pleasure. And thank you as well to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever podcasts are available. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the OMFIF podcast.